All right, everybody, welcome back to our study in Revelation. If you are new, my name is Rob, and you are stuck listening to me for a few minutes. Uh, if you have the app, I would encourage you to open it. You know, there are sermon notes in the app every week. Um, we can come up with written copies if we need to. They're just a little more challenging. So if you would like a written copy for the, some of this series, let me know. Um, I, can, I can make a few for you. But in any event... We are picking up today in Revelation chapter 11. If you remember, we finished up chapter 10 last week. We finished it up with a mighty angel telling John, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. He has given John this vision and giving him essentially marching orders, right? He said, you've got to continue to go tell everyone Essentially, throughout your entire life and on forward, that is the reason we have the book of Revelation, is because he did. He wrote it down so that the rest of us would continue to know what God told him. But this week we're going to shift as we pick up still that same scene in chapter 11 where John has gone from having marching orders or being told to prophesy to, be given, to being given an action to perform. He's got a job to do. It's not just about talking, there's doing involved, okay? So if you would, we're going to pick up in Revelation chapter 11. Verses 1 and 2 says this, it says, Then when I was given a measuring rod, a measuring reed like a rod, with these words, go, don't just talk, go, go, measure the temple of God and the altar, and count those who worship there, but exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. We see this in this discussion of a measuring reed, like a rod, it would be a rod or a staff would kind of be the the phrasing there. To hold in your hand and kind of put it forward and measure the temple and the altar. You're going to see the same imagery used later on in Revelation chapter 21. It's, the meaning here is to establish or to secure or to, to set parameters. That's what he's measuring for. He's counting the worshipers and setting the parameters for what will be God's holy city and God's holy people. These, this echoes visions of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 40. It says, uh, verse 3, it says, He brought me there as Ezekiel's having one of these visions. And I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze with a, a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hands. And he was standing by the city gate, the entry to the city of Jerusalem. Again, God's holy city, his seat, if you will, the place where he resides, where he's in charge, and where all of his will is done, right? But it, I think it really reflects Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. It says this, He answered me. This is as Zechariah is conversing with a surveyor that he has seen in his vision that God has given him. It says, He answered me to measure Jerusalem. This is why I'm here. To determine its width and its length. And the angel who was speaking with me went out, and another angel went out to meet him. He said to him, Run. Run and tell this young man Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the number of people and animals in it. It will be bursting at the seams, right? And 
keep in mind, the idea of a city without walls in that time frame was frightening. Why? Because there were threats everywhere, right? It would expose you to any group of people that would come along and try to take over your territory, which happened often. If you've read the Old Testament, it happened a lot where people were trying to take out each other and take over their territory. And so the notion of having a grand city, a holy city without wall is mind-boggling, but he says the declaration of the Lord in verse 5, I myself will be a wall of fire around it, and I will be the glory within it. It is a promise of God that you do not need these physical barriers, these physical walls, these things that we build in order to protect ourselves because when it's all said and done, it is God who is our protection. Imagine if we took that seriously. Imagine if we truly believed that God is our protection, that we need not build walls, that we need not lock our doors, that we need not take security precautions or buy firearms. Imagine if we really believed that God was our protection. Would that change our world at all? Would that change us at all? So John has been given the role of the person doing the measuring in John's vision. He's not just there to watch the occurrence. He's not just there to watch what's happening. The angel has said to him, no, you're going to be the measurer. You're the one who's going to take the reed that's like a rod, and you're going to go out, and you're going to measure the city. This idea of this, the temple or the altar in Revelation, and in Zechariah, and in Ezekiel, and in Daniel, and the other apocalyptic texts, the, the temple and the altar are decidedly not on the earth. They are decidedly in heaven. They are decidedly with God in his holy place. You come to the temple. The temple doesn't in particular come to you, right? You go to see him. And, and John has been transported into heaven to see God. He's taken the opportunity to measure because it reveals this massive number of people, not just protected by walls, but protected by God himself, right? Imagine that. This call to measure is two things. It is both concrete, defining those who God has preserved. It is also ideological, as it's trying to help us paint a picture that God is desiring to save many, so many that we can't possibly count. Sometimes we have a tendency to, to think we know who's going to be saved and who's not. Guess what? I don't get to make that call. You don't get to make that call. So even that little brother that's been driving you nuts since birth has every bit the right of salvation that you do if he comes to know the Lord. Keep that in mind. God decides who's saved. God is the one who decides how it's measured. I don't get to, you don't get to, he does. Which might cause us to broaden our scope, see people a little differently, 
recognize that yes, in some ways, we can all read the same text and maybe come up with some slightly different answers and guess what? That's still okay. Because if God has said you are saved and you are mine, that's all we need to know. Is it not true? That's all we need to know. He says, though, exclude the courtyard. Exclude the courtyard. One writer says that the courtyard is likely a place on earth or perhaps the earth itself. It is given to the nations and they will trample it. This is similar to what Jesus predicts about Jerusalem in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. It says, Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, until their time is done and God is going to take back what is his, what has always been his. Is it Jerusalem in 70 AD that they're talking about being trampled? For the people of that time, that's what they would have seen and believed. Is it the earth as a whole? I think it's very much a both and. We've kind of touched on this before, but I think it's important as we're going to understand Revelation to discuss the difference between how you and I may look at history and how the Hebrews may have looked at history and still do. Okay? So if you were to open a history book or even to open some of your Bibles in the back and you were to look at events that have occurred throughout history, you would see them probably neatly laid out on a nice little line that would show you this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and guess what? The United States became a country, and then this happened, and this happened, right? It's kind of this linear progression from beginning to end. The Hebrews did not look at history that way. The Hebrews looked at it as more of a coil, it was moving from beginning to end. They do believe that there was a beginning, that's creation. There is an end, the day of the Lord. But that history moves forward in kind of this looping, coiling fashion. Which essentially means that the kind of events that occurred back here, early on the timeline, still occur and will occur and reoccur again and again and again throughout history. Literally, precisely the same event? No, but the same kind of event. If you were to take, for example, the Jewish people's exiles, they were exiled not once, but twice. So they would count that as different coils. They were persecuted again, way down the road, hundreds of years later. And they were persecuted again, we know, in the 1940s by the Nazis, right? So they would call that a cycle that repeats itself. We know this to be true. We know that, as Ecclesiastes says, there is literally nothing new under the sun. Right? The poor have always been here. Nations have always risen and always fall. Right? And are replaced by a different nation that rises and falls. Economies grow and then they shrink and they grow again and then they shrink again. This is a reality of the cycle of life. Of, of the, the truth is we don't change and grow nearly as much as we'd like to think we do. And it's how they would have viewed history. And as John is writing, remember, John is a Jew. Right? As John is writing, 
this is how he would have viewed these events. Again, back to how we, how we originally kind of discussed how I approach Revelation, right? It has value for the first Christians, the last Christians, and the everyone in between. Because it speaks not only of our future, it also speaks of our present. And the realities that we face on a daily basis. I don't think you have to look too far in the world to see that clearly the outer courtyard is being trampled on by the nations. The world is a hot mess. Is it not? It's a work in progress. How about that? Sometimes a work in progress that we feel like is never going to be done or has no hope. But the book of Revelation is trying to remind us that there is a hope and that hope only comes in one place and his name is the Lord, right? He is our hope. And we, just, we started our discussion. I want to remind us as we're going through some of these images that the point of Revelation is that God wins. And that even as we're experiencing all these trials and these difficulties and this cycle that never seems to end, the truth is it does come to an end and the winner will be God. And so, all right, let's move on to Revelation 11, verses three through six. We're gonna begin to look at the two witnesses. It says, I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. That's connected to the 42 months we just read before. We'll get to that in a second. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. These two witnesses have quite a bit of control, do they not? I don't want to be on their bad side, do you? Because they get to decide how this all goes down. So who are these two witnesses? Well, the, the, the ties to two ancient Israelite characters in particular is pretty clear. It's Moses and Elijah. There's that tie, right? It's Elijah who predicted a, a, a famine, predicted a drought. It's Elijah who was present in 1 Kings 18, as, as he calls down fire from heaven, right? Onto the prophets of Baal. It's one of my favorite stories. I could tell that story over and over and over again all day long because he makes fun of Baal. It's hilarious. We also see echoes of Exodus here, right? The first plague, if you know the 10 plagues, Exodus kids, the first plague is... Water into blood, that's right. And then there are nine more plagues that come after it. So there's, there's clearly an illusion as, as the, the readers of this text originally would have said, oh, I see Moses and Elijah in this. I see their work. And more importantly, I see God's hand done through them, his work done through them. 
Again, there's that coil, right? It happened before. God is coming back in a similar way, partially so we don't miss that it's God working. Because we have a precedent, we have something to work off of. So who else could these witnesses be? Some have said these witnesses were Peter and Paul who were martyred in Rome for what they believed. And the witnesses will later, in a second, will be martyred. A group in the 17th century insisted that they were John, that the guys were John Reeve and Lodewick Muggleton. The group in the 17th century, by the way, was named the Muggletonians. You all thought Harry Potter thought of muggles first, didn't you? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The Muggletonians insisted it was their leaders that were the, these two witnesses. The Shakers insisted that it was actually the male and female aspects of God. The male aspect being Jesus, the female aspect, of course, being their founder, Mother Anne Lee. Some believe that they are two that will mark the end times, that will literally show up. It'd be very easy to try to dial in on who, what their identities are, but I think what's more important here isn't their identities, but what their roles and their purposes are. What they're here to do. What they're here to say. What they're here to measure. And what they're here to proclaim. They are the executors of God's judgment, right? We just said they can decide when the plagues will happen. They can decide how this all plays out. They can create a famine. They can create a drought. They can turn water into blood. They can plague the earth. They can decide how this all works. We kind of flew over Revelation 8 and 9 and all the imagery, and I had somebody say to me after, after I preached on Revelation 10, they said, coward, you flew through all the imagery. And, and that's intentional. Not because I don't think the imagery matters. I do. But as we're trying to cover the basics of this in about an eight-week period, I want to be sure that we catch the major waypoints along the way. In other words, I want to make sure that we catch the message that the imagery points to rather than digging so deeply into the muck and the mire of the imagery that we miss the point, right? We miss the proverbial forest for the trees. The trees are there. They make up the forest. They have value. They have meaning, but they lead to a point. And so that's why we've picked the texts that we have because we're trying to move from waypoint to waypoint, and that's why we're going to make a big jump next week. So if you haven't had your reading shoes on or eyes in, whatever. Horrible analogy, Rob. <laughs> Reading shoes. That's in here somewhere, I'm sure. Okay. That's an image. That's an image we don't need. Okay. So, if you haven't yet, we're going to jump all the way to Revelation 20 next week. Okay? Because we've got three weeks left, and we're going to do 20, 21, and 22. So, we're going to spend a lot of time in those last three chapters. And I might even teach you a song out of Revelation. I'm not going to teach that song. There's no way. The teens are laughing. They know the song, and I'm not teaching it. 
No. No. So, read the imagery. Read in Revelation 12. Right away, you're going to see a woman and a dragon. Right? Again, not originated with Harry Potter. Thank you very much. You're going to see all these crazy images, and I encourage you to read them with the lenses we've discussed already. Read them trying to see the colors and the numbers and the symbols and what those things mean. But remember, no matter what, they point towards something. They're designed to get you to the point in such a way that it doesn't just touch your mind, it also touches your heart. It makes your emotions swell up. It's no accident that that book, this book gets so many people so fired up. It's supposed to, right? It's supposed to make you think. It's supposed to make your wheels turn. You're supposed to chew on it. You're supposed to try to process it. But you're also supposed to keep the overarching view in mind. And that's what we're trying to focus on here. Because I don't want this book to be scary. I think it's scary for a lot of people. It used to be scary for me. Because I'd read about a woman and a dragon. Or seven trumpets. Or fire raining from heaven. Or the two witnesses. And I'm like, this is a lot for me to take in, people. But again, it points to God winning. And so we see these executors of judgment. Judgment on the inhabitants of the earth. Revelation 8 verse 13 speaks of this eagle who pronounces the three woes. By the way, two woes have passed in our story so far. The third one is yet to come in our story. But he pronounces the three woes. It says that the, the witnesses will prophesy for 12, 1,260 days. It's roughly equal to 42 months, which was mentioned in the previous section, which is about three and a half years. Three and a half years is half of seven. There's seven again. It's there. Why three and a half? Because you're going to see that number show up again in a second. Why do you think three and a half? What is seven? What does that represent? Completion. Fulfillment. It is done. It is finished. Three and a half very much represents already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. Right? You with me? It is, we can already see the presence of God, right? The, the presence, the God's presence is known, but it's not yet encompassing. The day of the Lord is imminent, but it has not yet arrived. Right? It's designed to help you see that God has not given up, that this is a work in progress, but it is work that he is committed to and a work that he will see finished. That he will get you to the end. He's here in the midst of all your coils and repeats and missteps and as broken as you think the world is and as much as you think this is falling, all falling apart, he is still here and he is pointing towards completion. He has not left. He has not forsaken us or you. He is here. We see that they're dressed in sackcloth. 
And sackcloth, you wear sackcloth when you're mourning. It would make me mourn if I was wearing sackcloth. It'd be kind of itchy, right? It's an indicator that the witnesses are mourning even as they're executing the judgment of God and ultimately even as they're going to proclaim the victory of God. Why would they mourn even as they're doing that? I believe it's because they know that some will be lost. They know that some will be lost along the way. They take no pleasure in controlling the environment. They take no pleasure in having this power over the waters to strike them and turn them into blood. There's no desire for them to do that because they too want to see all come to know the Lord. But there is a truth here. There's a recognition that at the end of the day, some will be lost. Again, you and I don't get to decide who's lost and who's not. But it is an unfortunate truth. The witnesses are trying to make sure that number is as small as possible. I'm really taken, though, by the imagery of the olive tree and the lampstands. This is a, um, a callback to Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah's fifth vision, he too calls for two witnesses, proclaims the presence of two witnesses. They are the lampstands. And also the presence of the olive tree. And in Zechariah's vision, he's got this amazing picture of these, these grand, enormous, abundant olive trees that are connected via a gold conduit directly to the lampstands. The lampstands are never disconnected. They stay there. And from the olive tree to the lampstands is this constant flow of pure, beautiful, gold-colored oil. E-V-O-O. Right? E-E-E-E-E-V-O-O. Right? But it's this idea that Zechariah, this is great leadership, understanding of how to lead as one of God's people. You cannot, Zechariah wants to make the point that in order for us to live out or lead, in Zechariah's case or in John's case, just live out what it means to be his witnesses, we must constantly be connected to the source. Because what's flowing through those tubes is not merely olive oil. It is very, as Zechariah says, it is the very spirit of the Lord. It is being connected to him. Connected to him through his word. Connected to him through prayer. Very much appreciated Nancy's time of prayer this morning. As it caused us to pause and reflect, we can get in a hurry sometimes. I had an urge to get on my knees. Maybe I should have. I avoid it because I don't want people to think I'm trying to be extra holy because I'm not. But maybe I should have. But we have to be connected to him in order to do what he's calling us to do. And these witnesses, these witnesses who are told to go out and take take control over everything 
These witnesses that God is protecting, these witnesses that God has called, they can't go out and do what he's asking them to do if they don't truly believe, as we just read when he's constructing and measuring the city, that it is God who will defend them. And it is God who is watching over them. Because if they're left to their own devices, they're limited by their own capacities. God is limitless. In order to truly be his witnesses in the world, they, and frankly we, can't do it without being constantly connected to him. To go where he tells us to go, even if it's sketchy. To do what he tells us to do, even if we're scared. To love who he tells us to love, even when we don't want to. Those things only come from being connected to him. That's it. There's no other way. That is the image that Zechariah portrays, and that is the image that John is seeing again. God wants his witnesses to be connected to him. In fact, they must be. In both cases, the purpose, the protection, and the power of these witnesses to influence the world around them are the result of their constant connection to the Lord. In John's time, in our times, and in the end times, it will always be that way. Let's keep going. Pick up in verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them. That's the witnesses, by the way. Conquer them and kill them. Yay! That's sarcasm. Did you catch that? Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Some of the people's tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days. There's the three and a half again. And not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Okay. So, if I'm signing up to be one of God's witnesses, it was all good a couple verses ago when I had power over everything, right? But now, guess what? The beast is coming. Up out of the abyss. Who would that be? Satan and or his minions. It's the evil one. It's coming up out of the abyss using, also using people as his hands and feet his fingers and tendrils to do things to these witnesses to take them out as though if he silences the witnesses it's, their message will never get out. Did that work? We're reading it. It got out. This is meant to draw us toward reflecting back on the experience of Jesus. Bottom line, right? And by the way, this great city that is Sodom and Egypt is, all, is really... Jerusalem. Now, is it Jerusalem just the city 
I don't think so. I think Jerusalem is supposed to be a reference point or a center point for the entirety of the world. Okay? But it's meant to draw us back to the experience of Christ where Christ died. Where the people who put him to death celebrated, which we're going to read in a second, celebrated his death. But there's that number, three and a half days, also similar to Jesus. But remember what we just talked about, what three and a half means. Already, not yet. So even as these witnesses are laying, by the way, not in a tomb this time, they're in public view. There will be no, the body was never there, there will be no, his people came and got him, there will be none of this, it's going to happen, it's happening right in front of us. God is still working in the midst of all of this. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to see God working when I'm dead. Right? When I feel like the walls are closing in on me, when I feel like the world is out to get me, it's much harder to see him working. I don't mean literally dead, right? You get that, right? When things are going horribly bad, is it easier or harder to see God? I think it depends on whether or not you're connected to him. Because these witnesses don't have any trouble seeing him. They are connected to him. They never stopped being connected to him. His spirit has driven them. His spirit has, is flowing through them. Even in death, they recognize that the thing they were called to do mattered and they were willing to pay the price. How fortunate are we that they were willing? How fortunate are we that Jesus was willing to pay the price for you and I? And so, if it couldn't get worse, it does. It says, those who live on the earth will gloat over them. This is picking up in verse 10. And celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet Come on now, vision, right? Get this vision. They're laying in state for everybody to see, and suddenly they go, what's up, guys? How you doing? How many of you are running for the doors, right? And it says they stood on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. You betcha. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. And at that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and they gave glory to God in heaven. The breath of life at the beginning of this, right? 
In verse 11, it says, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. That breath of life is designed to take us not from the end of times, but straight back to the beginning of times. It's intended to take us back to Genesis, where God breathed life into the nostrils of man and gave him holy breath, made him alive, imparted in him the the imago Dei, the very image of God. God's got a lot of power in his breath. I wish I had that kind of power in my breath. My kids would probably behave better. But anyways. And then we see them, the witnesses ascending on a cloud. Right? This is supposed to take you to Acts chapter 1. Where Jesus' disciples watched him ascend onto heaven. And by the way, they were standing there watching it and two men, two men in glowing robes, two witnesses, showed up and said, what y'all doing? He said he's coming back. You got work to do. Go do it. But there's something different about John's story. In Acts, it was his disciples that saw him. In Revelation, in John's story, it's not just the disciples it's the enemies too. It's everyone. When this is all said and done, everyone will see and know the power and the glory of God. Because it will no longer be already but not yet. It will be finished. It will be completed. And it will be undeniable undeniable we hear of the violent earthquake the violent earthquake that killed 7,000 people why that number completion yes thousand would make it a large number it's not a tiny number that will lose their lives remember our witnesses were in mourning This is not the fun stuff to talk about, right? We don't want to think about anybody not ending up with the Lord. But the truth is, there will be those, and John speaks of it, those who saw the light and choose the darkness anyways. It's a reality. Unfortunately. But it's a large number of people, but it is the complete number of people. So, all of those that God has decided are not going to end up with him will be gone. And all of those who are will be. Now God is already working in this. We see that a tenth of the city has fallen. A tenth of the city. You might say a tenth of the city, that's a lot. Actually, it's very little compared to what was happening in Revelation chapter 8 and 9. There it was a third. A third of everything, a third of the stars, a third of all the celestial bodies, a third of the earth, a third of the people, a third of everything. And now, as the witnesses have gone out and pronounced, as the witnesses have prophesied for three and a half years of God's presence, God working, God moving, God already being here, and God going to see this through to completion, the number of people who are losing their lives is actually falling. Does it make sense? It's a smaller and smaller percentage. Why is that important for us to get? 
their witness matters. Even if the world is making fun of them, gloating over them after they're dead because they tormented them. They didn't really torment them. What they did was tell them about Jesus and tell them that the day of the Lord is coming. They told them the truth. They were persecuted for telling the truth. And it helped. It makes a difference. It matters. Sometimes I think we convince ourselves with our witness that it will always fall on deaf ears and it will not matter. These witnesses here understand that it does. That no effort put into the work of God, the witness of God, the telling people of God, that living out the call that he has on our lives will ever come back void. There might be a scripture about that. It has, that was sarcasm, I know it. (laughs) It has value. It matters. The starfish story, you've heard the starfish analogy is what I'm reminded of. There's a man walking along the beach who sees thousands of starfish along the beach, stranded, they can't get back to the water. And he's picking picking one at a time up and he's chucking them back in the water. Somebody else comes by and says, this is futile. This is never going to work. You can't save them all. And he said, I bet it's not futile for the ones that got thrown back in. Sometimes it can feel like as, as we're being called to tell people of who God is, it can feel like we're that person in the starfish. We will never resolve it all. And the truth is we won't. That's a reality stated here. Some will choose darkness. Some will not be saved. But if you think your witness doesn't matter to influence who might be saved, then you're telling yourself a lie. Maybe out of fear. Maybe out of a desire to remain comfortable because you don't want to be discomforted. These guys were conquered and killed. They were probably uncomfortable. There's, There's a call here to recognize that our witness matters. Yes, our witness here as we sit here together and we, bring, we praise, bring glory to God, right? And we encourage one another and strengthen one another. But our witness outside, I would dare say, might be just as, if not more important. It's wonderful that we come here to the temple, for lack of a better term, right? John came to the temple. God brought him to the temple, to his holy place, to worship him, to watch what's going on. And then he tells him, you must prophesy. And then he says, go. Go tell. And by the way, the two witnesses are going to come along and they are out in public prophesying and telling about the things of God. They are out in public saying to people, you are lost, I can help you be found. The day of the Lord is coming and I want you to be ready for it. And they are relentless in doing that. Imagine if we were all relentless in telling people who our God is in warning them, yes, of the dangers that that lie in not knowing him, but also of the blessings that lie in knowing him. 
not just later, but now too. Don't miss out on that. The gospel isn't just for the end times or isn't just for all of your eternity. Your eternity starts when? Now. The gospel should change our life today. These witnesses got that. Do we get that? Are we connected enough to God to recognize that it should fundamentally change the way I think, change the way I act, change what I prioritize, and most importantly, that it's worth it. It's worth it. J. Ramsey Michael says that what could not be accomplished through the plagues of the six trumpets has now been accomplished through the martyrdom and the vindication of God's people. We are not plan B. We are the vessel through whom which God has chosen to say, I will make myself known and I will offer salvation to the world. This is our call. This is why you and I are followers of Jesus. This is why the church exists. It's to be his witnesses. And if I'm counting heads, there's a few more than two in here. It's to be his witnesses in the world. Their witness and ours is of great purpose, even if the world can't see it. It must be proclaimed till the very end so that as many as possible will give glory to our God in heaven. And if you'll permit me just to remember that there's something in it for us too. To quote a Johnny Cash song, ain't no grave gonna hold this body down. The witnesses will arise and be returned to heaven. And all will see the glory of God. That is our call. That is our honor. We should be humbled by it, challenged by it, and encouraged knowing that the creator of the universe is guiding us, protecting us, and loving us enough to send his son to die for us. Amen? Amen and amen. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, our talent offering, I believe, is going to come up, right? Okay. All right. Father God, as we read the words of Revelation, the imagery can be overwhelming at times, mostly because I think uh, our capacity to imagine is well nothing compared to yours. We tend to limit you sometimes. And in limiting you, we in many ways limit ourselves. But we know that you have created each and every one of us to be here, to be your people, to be your witnesses in the world. To tell others of your greatness. To tell others of your son to tell others of the reality that you are, your son is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. 
I pray that as we leave here, after we hear our talent offering and we sing a hymn together that we will be strengthened, that your name will be lifted up and that we will, more importantly, go out into this world and lift up your name again to those that might listen. Knowing that our call is simply to be your witnesses. You're the one who does all the saving. We're just called to tell other people of you. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. And thank you for the opportunity to know you and tell others of you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.